May it please the court, my name is Richard Schmitz. I represent appellant Edward Martin. This is a case involving a sufficiency challenge to a conviction for a violation of the predatory offender registration statute. The element that is contested in this case is whether the state's evidence properly established that appellant was a person who was required to register under Minnesota law. There are many points of dispute in this case between appellant and respondent, but I wanna focus on three fundamental disputes uh, which I want to discuss in today's argument. Number one, whether the state's evidence adequately establishes that appellant was registering in California for life. And number two, if not, whether the state can change the theory of prosecution on an element on appeal. And number three, if so, whether the state's piecing together of the record still survives scrutiny. The bottom line is under, uh, our position is that no matter what theory of criminal liability the state's argued in this case, the state has failed to prove their case. Let me start with uh, the issue of whether or not assertions and documents from the DOC and BCA properly established that appellant registers for life in California. In general, when a defendant de declines to stipulate to an element of an offense, uh, the state's required to present evidence. And when that element is a prior conviction, that's normally done through the judgment of conviction or the warrant of commitment. When the state incorporates out-of-state convictions, there has to be a secondary level of analysis. Not only does the state have to prove at trial to the fact finder uh, that there's a judgment of conviction, but the state also needs to present evidence to the fact finder as to why an out-of-state conviction operates as a Minnesota equivalent. So in this context, law has to be part of the evidence that the state needs to present. So your arguments that a court is not equipped to actually do a little legal research and find what the other statute says and look at the case law? I mean, isn't that what courts do every day? No, of course not. That's not our argument. It is when a conviction is an element of the offense and when a statute includes uh, Minnesota equivalents, that is an element of the offense. It's either an element or it's not. If it's an element, the state would need to present evidence. But they put in evidence that he was convicted of criminal sexual battery and cite to the statute. That's correct. So what evidence is missing if a court can then go look at the statute, which you've just agreed to? The fact finder never found that sexual battery under California law had the uh, Minnesota equivalent of... Okay, that's a, that's a fair point, but that is something we could actually look at, or you're saying that we can't reach that issue? You cannot reach that issue. And why is that? Because it's an element of the offense. The fact finder has to find that element proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The state... Can we remand it then for the court to look at that? No, this is a sufficiency challenge and double jeopardy would bar a remand. The state has one shot to prove their case and they failed in this manner. So can I ask you if, if in fact we were to find that uh, criminal sexual battery is a fourth degree offense, first of all, are you arguing that it's not? No. So you're not, you've waived that argument? No, I didn't waive the argument. So are you, uh, so can we just, can we look at, uh, assuming your argument about your, your argument that you just made doesn't hold up, can we look at the fact that, can we do the comparison ourselves like the Court of Appeals did? No. Because they didn't introduce the evidence. Correct. Or, is, well, it's not that they didn't introduce the evidence, it's that the district court didn't make the finding? Uh, it's both. They didn't introduce it so the district court could not have made the finding. But they, but they introduced the evidence of what the, of what the crime was, they, they cited the statute. Let me uh, make an analogy. If this had been a jury trial, the jury would have had to determined that the California offense was the Minnesota equivalent. The state would have done that by presenting evidence at trial to the fact finder 
that the California offense was the Minnesota equivalent. Um, we would not expect jurors to open law books in the deliberation room during the deliberating process. So the state would have to prove not only the judgment of conviction from California, but it would have to prove why the out-of-state conviction qualifies as a Minnesota equivalent. And the jury would have to find that or else it's not an element of the offense. And what, what counsel, what would they put in? Give me an example of what would they put in to show that they were similar? Well, in-, in uh, That's, That in we this, don't have in front of us now. In this case, the uh, jury instructions were, uh, people need to register in Minnesota if they're convicted of certain crimes. These crimes qualify, da, 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 da. Uh, uh, the defendant was convicted of sexual battery, the elements of uh, sexual battery in California, da, 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 the jury would then have to find that whatever he was convicted in California would then translate into a Minnesota equivalent. Don't we have all of that here? What are we missing here? We uh, know the we elements. We don't have it in here. The state never presented any evidence of the elements for the California statute. It's not part of the record. And you're saying, in answer to Justice Thiessen, we can't simply look at the statute, and because we can look at the statute, we have the statute, and we can see what the elements are. You cannot look at the statute in determining whether or not the state has submitted evidence to prove. In this case, law is facts. Law is part of the state's case. If you present, uh, the state would need to present evidence of the elements of the California state uh, statute, and then the jury or the fact finder here, the court would have had to find that the state has submitted enough evidence to prove that. So under our statute, then, if this went to a jury trial, the prosecution would have to put in the statutes would they have to bring in an expert to explain what the criminal sexual battery was, a lawyer to explain what that those elements were? Because it's not just the elements listed in the statute, it's what the case law developing what those elements mean mean as well. So then the state would have to bring in an expert to provide what the California case is, and then also an expert to talk to a jury, which aren't lawyers, what the elements of fourth degree criminal sexual conduct in this case would be. It might be difficult to craft your instruction in this case. I wouldn't see the name for an expert, but that doesn't relieve the state of its burden to prove every element of a charged offense. So what would a jury rely on, a jury of lay people rely on if they didn't have an expert come in and explain what the law was? Uh, they would have to do a comparison of, of elements from the Minnesota, whatever in this so, case. Would so be they would degree. read unlawfully restrained in the criminal sexual battery statute, and then they'd look over and say, well, what is, uh, what does force and coercion mean under the Minnesota statute? without any context about how the case laws develop that and, and, and make an analysis of that instead of the judge instructing them that this is what these things mean under California law and this is what these things mean under Minnesota law? If that's your holding, then you basically said this offense is a, it's not an element, it's a directed verdict because the trial court will give the jury everything to convict based on their determination that it's a Minnesota equivalent, no longer an element. Well, I'm asking you, though, what you would have to prove and for, but I'm just trying to understand what a jury would be doing in this situation. The element of the offense is, the first element of the offense is that appellant is a person required to register under the statute. However, the state chooses to prove that is up to them. Normally, it would be done by introducing a judgment of conviction from a qualifying offense. There's a list of offenses, so there'd be a jury instruction, say, certain offenses require registration, and the state has to prove that he's been convicted of- If it's of, a Minnesota offense. Right. Yes. So then they would submit the judgment of right. conviction. That would probably be enough evidence this court would sustain that under a sufficiency challenge. But well, I'm, I'm trying to understand what's going on here. Um, let me um, 
Let me ask you a question, Council. It seems to me that the parties agree that the district court's conviction under one subdivision was an error, and the parties also agree that the conviction that the Court of Appeals relied on was also in error. Am I, am I right about that? Uh, I think so. Yes, I, I don't want to speak for respond, but yes, I think he'll, so. I he'll think correct that's where me we're if at. I'm wrong. I'm sure, but yeah. but but in in light of that, um, I mean, don't we have a um, given the fact that this? I mean, don't we just have a failure to prove the offense at the end of the day? Isn't that the isn't that the end of the analysis and all this discussion about what the court could or could not have done? Uh, doesn't that become irrelevant? Or am I missing something? I agree with that. Uh, and in our brief, we rely heavily on Colvin for that proposition. And it's uh, if, you, if you look at Colvin, the approach of the court in that case was to describe the historical facts found by the trial court as X. And the court then determined the historical facts X did not support the guilty verdict under, under any theory uh, of prosecution presented at trial. And the court then said, we're not going to do anything else. We're done. That's the end of our analysis. Here, like in Colvin, the party stipulated to the state's exhibits. That was a stipulated evidence trial. Uh, for a sufficiency review, he waived his jury trial rights under that framework. And the trial court's findings cannot be sustained. That should be the end of it. There should not be uh, this piecing together of the exhibits to try to find some alternative basis for why he registers. But if I look at the district court's order, it says the district, the district court did two things. It reasoned that Mr. Martin was required to register because California criminal sexual battery is an offense requiring registration under Minnesota law, which I think is the our thing you're arguing about. And then went on to say, and, the, and where the error was, I mean, maybe that was an error, but where the real error was that then that requires lifetime registration because he had a prior conviction, which he didn't. So there's really two things the district court was saying. I, it feels like the district court actually did decide, although without much analysis, the issue you're talking about. Uh, we, we challenge uh, finding a fact number seven because there's no, nothing in the record to uh, support that. But that comes back to this thing then about the jury. And what would have to go, this thing that you have to put in the two statutes and let the jury or the fact finder compare the two statutes. And because they didn't put evidence of, I mean, the evidence you want to put in is, you, they, you have to actually put in the copy of the statute? It wouldn't necessarily be a copy of the statute. They would have to be crafted jury instructions where they would explain fourth degree criminal sexual conduct and the elements of that. But the, so the judge here though is, is sitting as the fact finder. So he has to craft jury instructions for himself that would say the exact things that the judge would, uh, he's, you're, you're arguing that he has to craft jury instructions for himself to do the thing which I'm suggesting maybe he could do, which is to look at the two statutes. He wouldn't craft jury instructions. They certainly review the jigs when they determine whether or not a person is, or whether or not the state's proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The thing that I'm going to come back to over and over again is it's either an element of the offense or it's not. If it's an element of the offense, the state has to produce evidence at trial to prove the element. And what's the evidence that wasn't put in? There's many things that weren't put in. Uh, number one, most importantly, there's nothing to show that the California offense was the equivalent. The second part of it is when you're dealing with the complex... But I thought you said that they don't have to put in the statute. They, they have to... The state has to prove that Mr. Martin was required to register in Minnesota. As part of that, they, however they choose to do that, it's their business. 
Uh, but to prove it's a Minnesota equivalent, most likely what they'd have to do is put the elements in from the fourth degree and put the elements in from the uh, California offense and, and argue to the fact finder why they're the equivalent. Okay, can, assuming that the court disagrees with you on that point and that the judge can take judicial notice of, uh, for as an example of what these two statutes say as he's sitting as fact finder in this case? He didn't. I, I'm saying assume that that's the case, that we, we find that that's the case. Okay. Uh, in that circumstance, then, um, and the Court of Appeals here found that the criminal sexual battery is the equivalent of fourth degree criminal sexual conduct. Yes, they did. And you're not challenging that? I'm not challenging that, no. And so then, if that's the case, then under 1BB3, doesn't, isn't he required to register for the rest of, would he be required to register for the rest of his life? So if you lose on your first argument and you're not challenging whether criminal sexual battery, I mean, it seems like the plain language of 1BB3 says that the, the kind of the 10-year thing goes away, basically. Um, there's many things to unpack from your question. Uh, I, if, the, if the question is, would he register for life? We're at the point now where there's under no theory does he register for life. Um, because of the fact that Minnesota independently did not have lifetime registration for crimes occurring before August 1st, 2000, no retroactive effect. But in 2006, the statute, when it was changed to say, unless a person is subject to a longer registration period under the laws of another state, and if so, they are subject to that longer registration period, regardless of when the person was released for confinement. And the 2006 effective date language says this applies to anybody who is resident in Minnesota after this date. And has also says they have to enter the state. What? So, Your Honor, you'd be reading out enters in the present tense from that. He entered the state, according to the, to, to the state, he was uh, entered the state in 2000. Right. So there's no way the 2006 amendment would apply to him because uh, he hadn't entered the state, or he had entered the state before then. But he entered the state having this prior conviction, which are the two requirements now. And then in 2006, the legislature said, if you did that, even if you didn't do it, you know, at, before 2006, you're, if you're resident here, you're still, you're still subject to these, to these requirements. That two 10-year look-back periods that you haven't referenced. If Martin was registering in California, which we don't know. But the 10-year look-back period goes away under the 2006 amendment, right? No. He would have to have uh, entered the state uh, within 10 years from being released from confinement if he wasn't registering. And if he was registering, we would have to know when he first started registering because he would only have to register for 10 years. And if he entered Minnesota in year eight of the 10-year term, he'd only have two more years to go. There's no tolling provision in the registration statute that would extend that. Also, if he wasn't registering in California, we would need to know when he's released from confinement in California because that's when the 10 years start um, for Minnesota to determine whether or not he still has to register under 10-year theory. And we don't know when he's released from confinement in California because it's not part of the record. And uh, in, in terms of the uh, registration statute, not only am I saying that they would have to submit evidence of the, uh, the uh, California elements to prove a Minnesota equivalent, the state would also have to prove why he registers uh, in Minnesota for life based on the California conviction. They have no evidence of that either. When you're dealing with a complex regulatory statute, we're trying to make somebody register for a 30-year-old case. It might be more complicated than the typical case. It doesn't mean the state's relieved of their burden. 
Um, the state relies on uh, for the idea that that uh, uh, they can go beyond the record. They rely on the Eller case. Um, that's a court of appeals opinion. It's likely wrongly decided. Uh, it's distinguishable because Eller was part of a stipulated two exhibits. He had a co complaint in the in the exhibits that was stipulated to. They also rely on the Dirigi case. The Dirigi case is not a, is not about waiver. It's about process. It has nothing to do with, with a defendant waiving. Uh, their rights to challenge a stipulated to evidence as being legally sufficient to convict. Um, I also wanted to uh, outline some, some of the other things the state failed to submit into evidence which would be necessary to prove why Mr. Martin's registering. Um, there is absolutely no exhibits that contain documentation from a California agency that show appellant was registering in California. The only thing we got from California as to uh, uh, the issue of registration is that he isn't required to register as a, a sex offender in California. No writer in the state's exhibits even reference a document from the California agency that purports to show appellant was registering in California. No writer in the state's exhibits explains why appellant registers for life when his offense occurs before August 1st, 2000. No writer in the state's exhibits explains why we take the registration term from the our state when his offense occurred before June 2nd, 2006. No writer in the state's exhibits explains why when appellant was released from prison in California, which would be necessary to do the 10-year analysis. No writer in the state's exhibits explains when appellant left the state of California, which would be necessary for their 1995 amendment argument. No writer in the state's exhibits explains when appellant first registered in California in connection with the offense, which would be necessary for the 10-year review. Counsel, I, I'm sorry, I'm not understanding your first beginning. You're saying no what? I'm talking about the BCA documents and the DOC documents that they're relying on in their exhibits to say they prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, but what, what you said no something, and I couldn't understand what you were saying every time. No writer. No, no writer, none of the people who prepared the reports that the state's relying on ever make these assertions. Sorry, none of the documents say these things that you're talking about as you're going through the list. Correct. That's the point. All of which would have been necessary to put into the record to establish the element of the offense. I've covered everything I wanted to, so unless the court has other questions, I'll come back for you. Well, can you just explain why the registration in California is relevant? why the proof that he actually was required to register in California is relevant? The trial court found that Mr. Martin registers for life in Minnesota because he registers for life in California. There's no evidence of that in the record. Is it that he registers or that he's subject to registration for life in California? I don't know that if that why the distinction would matter. Well, because you, we have a statute that says that criminal sexual battery as of 95 retroactively is a life registration offense. So we, we, we know that, I mean, whether it's in the record or not, but we know that's what the law is. But it seemed like you're making a different argument. That's why I'm asking that in addition to knowing what the law is about whether you're required to register for life, you actually had to have registered. I thought you were making a different argument, and maybe you're not. There's alternative theories that the state's presented on appeal that I'm trying to address all at the same time, so it's probably confusing. One of the arguments they make is that Minnesota has lifetime registration. Uh, that was what the Court of Appeals held on that uh, I think they've now conceded that doesn't apply anymore because um, the offense occurred before August 1st, 2000. 
The other theory about why he registers for life is that you take the term from California for lifetime registration, and uh, that's only done, uh, like I said, for cases occurring on or after June 2nd, 2006, but... Uh, it seems like the language of the effective date is different than that, but that we'll have to look, we'll go back and look at the language. Okay. And then in terms of their argument that uh, he was registering for life starting in 1995, there's no documentation in the exhibits whatsoever that he registered in California for life or that he registered in response to their 1995 amendment. So that's based completely on speculation, not based on the exhibits that were introduced into trial. Counsel, if I may, before you sit down, um, I'm assuming if we agree with you, you're, you would be seeking a flat-out reversal and there would be for instance no remand back to the district court so that the state could put in some of the documentation you claim that is missing correct it's because it's a sufficiency of the evidence challenge double jeopardy would double, I was going to say okay thank you thank you counsel you have 5 minutes for rebuttal mr lofton May it please the court, Patrick Lofton for the state of Minnesota. This court should affirm appellant's conviction for one reason only, and that's because there's sufficient evidence in the record to show that he was required to register as a predatory offender and that he failed to do so. Now, do you agree that if there's not sufficient evidence in the record that the result should be a reversal and no remand? I think that if there's not sufficient evidence in the record, yes, it's reversal with no remand. If this court finds that it's not sufficient analysis in the record, that there could be a remand for the judge to perform that analysis. Uh, let me ask you also, um, well, I'll come back to that. Go. What's the difference? The difference is, is that one involves submitting evidence after the fact, and I think that would violate principles of double jeopardy, whereas the other addresses a clerical error, essentially, um, a technicality in the order when there is sufficient evidence in the so record. So you're saying that we would, under your theory, we could remand that the evidence is there for the district court to, to analyze. And you're going to tell us, I'm sure, here in a minute, why your opponent is wrong about all this evidence. And that the judge simply needs to do the correct analysis and find, the if there is one, uh, the, the correct statutory provision. I don't think the judge needs to, Your Honor. I think that that's an option if remand is something that this court wanted to do. Under Minnesota Rule of Criminal Procedure 2601, subdivision 2E, if the judge fails to make a finding that is essential to the general finding, it should be construed on appeal as consistent with the general finding. And to answer one of Your Honor's earlier questions, I'd like to move into that now. I wish that I had reworded uh, prong, prong two of my argument in the brief differently. If you look on page 16 of my brief, it says it doesn't matter that the trial court found the defendant guilty under the wrong subdivision and that the Court of Appeals affirmed that. That's not what happened. I didn't articulate that appropriately. What really happened is that the trial court made one erroneous finding of fact and the Court of Appeals affirmed that. Because if you look at the trial court's order, both orally and in writing, what he does is he finds the defendant or the appellant guilty under subdivision 5A. 
And that's the only subdivision he could find the appellant guilty under because that's the subdivision of the failure to register law that outlines criminal liability. And what that says is that it's a crime to violate any provision of this section. So what really matters on appeal at this point is whether the record has enough evidence to sustain that finding. The fact that the fact that he uh, that the trial judge made one finding uh, of why the defendant was required to register in error uh, doesn't matter because there's sufficient evidence of two other reasons that the defendant was required to register. Doesn't the court have to articulate what the basis is? It's not, how can it be sufficient to just cite subdivision, I think it's 5A, which is just a, the general provision for, for registering. Doesn't the judge have to articulate a basis? Your Honor, uh, that is the subdivision that makes it a crime to violate any provision. And essentially what that means is there are... But doesn't he have to say what provision then is violated? That just doesn't make sense to me. Well, the jury wouldn't have to. And here, of course, it would have been nice for the trial judge to have stated the correct basis. That's, that's certainly true. But that's why I analogize in the brief to cases on jury unanimity. Um, if this had been submitted to a jury, we would never know under which basis they chose that defendant had to register. Um, it's analogous to uh, any other crime. But typically in those unanimity cases, the jury has two alternatives from which to choose. That doesn't seem to track for me. There's no all, you know what I'm saying? Those cases, yeah, and I think this is not that. Well, I think it would be a trial, Your Honor, in front of a jury. I think that the jury could be instructed if you find that defendant um, his conviction is similar and he registers in California than he registers here, or if you find that uh, defendant was subject to lifetime registration in California than he registers here. And if the jury came back with a verdict of guilty, we may not know which of those alternative means they chose in making that finding. And I think it's the same here with a trial judge, and really that interplays with that rule of criminal procedure, 2601 subdivision 2E. It recognizes that parties uh, don't get a windfall based on technicalities, uh, small errors in an order. But if, did, the judge also cited in his conclusions to 243.166B1, so he cited to a provision, it wasn't just 5A that he relied on, it was, he, he cited to this provision that says this California violation is a violation of Minnesota law. Right. Um, and so that could be an erroneous, like, his conclusion of law that he has to register under the provision that wasn't passed until 2000 could be an erroneous finding, but if the ultimate finding of guilt under subdivision 5A is supported by the evidence, well, that, then... Yeah, okay. That one, I think, was passed in 95, if I'm not mistaken. But it, in any event... Oh, sorry. Um, he does cite to the provision... Oh, you mean 1BB3? 1BB3, yeah. Yes, Your Honor. And so, therefore, earlier in the order, when he at first cites 6D1, which is the provision for having a prior crim sex, which no one says that appellant had and was obviously a clerical error, or when he cites to 6D3, which is the provision that was passed in 2000, if the ultimate finding comes under one that is correct, the state's position is that there's sufficient evidence. Counsel, let me uh, probe a little bit on your analogy to jury unanimity. Sure. Um, with the jury, it's a black box. So if you've got a felon, or if you've got a uh, illegal possession of a firearm case, and the uh, the indictment or the 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 complaint says the defendant was a felon and also was mentally disabled, can't possess under either one. Jury comes back guilty. We don't know which of the two or which combination of the two they did, right? Right. 
But we do know in this case, and we know the judge chose an alternative that was groundless as a matter of law. Right. So how can we as an appellate court say, oh, we can, we can pick some other ground? Uh, uh, are, are we doing fact finding then? No, Your Honor, what you're doing is you're deferring to the judge's finding of facts, which by the way, he found all of the evidence in the record to be reliable and credible in all respects. But what you're doing is you're construing that rule of criminal procedure, 2601 subdivision 2E, which recognizes that one little piece of the puzzle being an error doesn't mess up the whole Well, in this puzzle. case, it is the only piece of the puzzle that the district court relied on, right? I, I, I don't think so. I think that they, that the trial judge looked at the entire record, saw that there were credible statements by the BCA and by law enforcement that appellant had to register for life. And while those statements in the record, as counsel points out, don't necessarily put their underlying basis there, and then the judge went and picked the wrong version of the statute, what the judge essentially did was find all the record, evidence in the record credible. And we defer to that finding, unless it's clearly erroneous. Um, and to that point, to the, uh, uh, the jury unanimity analogy, Your Honor, I, I spoke about this a little bit in my brief, but I'd like to articulate it a bit here as well. If this had been an aggravated robbery, and all of the evidence in the record, all of the police reports, everything said that the person threatened the victim with a knife in order to take the property, and the judge found all of that credible. But in one little error and a finding of fact, because the judge had a million cases on his or her desk that day, or for whatever reason, wrote that, I find that the robber punched the victim and took the property that way, committed bodily harm. This court would not, it would not be right for this court to reverse that when the, when the underlying evidence is sufficient. And it's the same principle that we can't always read jurors' minds, and yes, we should be able to read judges' minds to a certain extent. Their orders should be thorough, and there should be more robust analysis. It would be nice if that were the case here. But what essentially happened is a technicality. It is a small error that I don't think warrants reversal of the entire case. Do you lose this case if the criminal sexual battery in California is not, is not a violation of fourth degree criminal sexual conduct? We would lose under the uh, 1BB3. We would not lose under, I believe it is, subdivision uh, 6E. But doesn't 6E, isn't one of the elements of 6E that you have to first prove up 1BB? Isn't that the first line of subdivision 6E? I think that subdivision 6E says that if you register for lifetime, or subject to registration for lifetime elsewhere, you're subject to lifetime registration here. I thought that the statute started saying if you, um, if you are subject to subdivision 1BB and then that's subject to lifetime, then you have to register. A person described in subdivision 1BB who is required to register under the laws of a state. So it has to first be a person who has to register under 1BB, which would require that sec criminal sexual battery is the same as fourth degree criminal sexual conduct. Your Honor, I hadn't interpreted it that way. I could be in error, uh, but I'm not at all, I'm, I'm not confident that the sexual battery from California um, is analogous to crim sex four here. Well, and so, and you use the word similar and you use the word analogous. Where do those words come from? Because it seems like it has to be, it said, the statute seems to say it has to be a violation of Minnesota law. Right. So where do you get that? Well, if it's similar to a violation of Minnesota law or analogous to a violation of Minnesota law, where, where, do, you, where do you get that? Well, I shouldn't have used the word analogous. I think similar is the word and that comes from subdivision 1B or similar offense. 
that's but but that's not the that's not the law in 2014, right? Sorry, that that wasn't the law that applies to this conviction because that was a 2014 amendment. I, I thought from the briefing that in 2014, the legislature adopted that language before it had to be a conviction that was a violation of Minnesota law. Oh, yes, that is correct, Your Honor. So and where does similar come in in that regard? Well, I think that if fulfilling the elements of sexual battery would fulfill the elements of crim sex four, then you have a violation of Minnesota law. But I'm saying if we find that that's not the case, then do you have any argument that you win? Yes, that under 6E, if you're subject to lifetime registration elsewhere, you're subject to lifetime registration here. Even with that, even with the first? If, if your reading of it is correct, Your Honor, then yes, we do lose. Okay. If it's not similar to the California conviction. And then can you talk a little bit, respond to this argument that, which I'm, I'm still not entirely clear about, but that somehow the evidence of the criminal sexual battery and the lifetime registration that goes along with it was not put into the record or had to put be put in in a different way? Uh, this is one thing that I agree with the Court of Appeals on. I don't think I can find any authority that would say that a party has to submit evidence of a law. Um, to that same point, uh, for we know that the one provision that the trial court found was not passed until 2000 when, and was explicitly not retroactive. There is no evidence of that in the record either. That is just law that counsel appropriately found when he appealed this case and uh, introduced at that point. The same way that the trial judge here could go and look at the jigs for crim sex four and the jigs for sexual battery and compare those. I don't think those have to be in the record. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Um, and then to Justice Lillehog's question about um, the judge's findings in this case and the procedural posture here. When I cited Derage in this case, um, I, I want to articulate how that applies to where we're at. The parties repeated over and over in this case that they were doing a stip facts trial, not a stip evidence trial. Um, you'll see in page 13 of the March 12th transcript and earlier, um, or I'm sorry, the March 8th transcript that they constantly refer to it that way. The judge does, uh, um, uh, uh, communicates with the defendant and says, you understand that what you're submitting are facts. I'm going to find that this is what happened. And then his attorney has that ex same exchange with him about that as well. So what that does to appellant's argument is this. He can always challenge sufficiency of the evidence, whether it's stiff facts or stiff evidence. That is definitely true. But the posture with stiff facts is different than stiff evidence. What his, what his challenge essentially is now is whether as a matter of law, these facts can constitute this crime, not whether this evidence is credible or reliable. And to be clear, the state's argument doesn't depend on this. This court can still find that the trial judge was not clearly erroneous in finding the evidence to be credible and reliable if it was a stiff evidence trial. But I think that this stiff facts framework uh, really colors appellant's argument here because you can't. You know, you know. I, 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 I read your argument and I'm not persuaded. And I'll tell you the concern that I have here. I mean, we, we've had some case law on this about the difference between determining these uh, various types of um, stipulated trials. But here it looks like at all times the intent was to preserve the registration issue for the judge to review. And that really means regardless of what you call this thing, it's stipulated evidence, isn't it? No, Your Honor. They consistently refer to it as... I understand they say stipulated facts. I get that. But, um, but what's really happening here is it's a stipulated evidence trial. 
Right? I gather you don't agree with that, and if not, why not? Under DRJ, Your Honor, it says that a stipulated evidence trial is when you submit various pieces of evidence. Witness A is saying X and witness B is saying Y, and those things conflict, and then the judge has to make a decision without argument. But here what happened is the state submitted an agency packet and uh, police reports that don't contain inconsistent statements, and the judge found all of that credible and reliable. Isn't there an inconsistency in the fact that he's actually challenging whether, I mean, the whole point of this is that he's saying, I don't have to register for life. Doesn't that create some kind of a fact issue? It, it certainly does, but that should have been raised at the trial court level, because at the trial court level, there would have been no deference to the facts. They would be fresh facts that the judge has a clean slate on, and the defense can argue and the state can argue, but now that we're on appeal, it's a clearly erroneous standard. And I don't think it's clearly erroneous for a trial judge to take 365 pages of BCA documents and say, well, they've been documenting that he had to register for over a decade now, and I find that credible. Yeah, the, the problem, though, is I think Justice Anderson has accurately pointed out, this really does look like stipulated evidence. If it's stipulated facts, you, sh you should probably be just submitting a stipulation to the judge saying, fact one, fact two, fact three, we agree with all these facts. And then the judge makes a decision. But when you slap together a packet of police reports, it really looks a lot like this is the evidence in the case. It's not the facts. Um, how do you respond to that? I agree with you that what was submitted in the record looks more like a stipulated evidence trial because it is police reports, reports, it's agency reports and all of that. But without defense counsel making any argument to the contrary of those and without, uh, for example, another stipulated facts trial or a stipulated evidence trial might look like a domestic assault or a criminal sexual conduct where everyone submits police reports. And in the police reports, the victim says, he assaulted me, and the defendant in his scale statement says, I did not assault her. There you have two. Well, stipulated evidence can have internal contradictions or not, Correct. but it's still stipulated evidence. So let me ask the question this way. What is the fact to which the defendant stipulated that makes him guilty as a matter of law? Certainly. Uh, you can look at a number of places in the exhibits, but I'd point you first to um, Exhibit 3, I believe, is the police report. And in that, Sergeant Darren Blauert. Yeah, but I'm, I'm asking, did the defendant stipulate to a fact, not to a, the existence of a piece of evidence? I think so. By, by what, what fact is that? That he was required to register for life and that he didn't check in um, as a homeless person as he was required to do. There are also documents, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are documents where he scratches out the requirement or, or otherwise indicates that um, he's registering, but it's sort of under protest, although he doesn't use the fancy legal terminology. What do we do with that? Well, Your Honor, I don't think that that arises to a contested statement as contemplated by Derage. I mean, that's a person who scratched out a form. What we have is a large, voluminous piece of documentation that he's been registering here for over a decade and was required to do so. And there's statements by the people who investigate this case and the trial judge had no reason because defense counsel didn't present him with any of those reasons. I have to say, I have some trouble with the argument that, um, let's put it this way, if in fact he was not required to register, the mere fact that he has been registering um, it strikes me that, you know, if you were dealing with a civil matter, it might be different. But if you're dealing with a criminal matter, um, I think the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he had an obligation. And I think that's what this dispute is all about. Um, I, I'm not sure that's a question. That might be a speech. Um, let me ask you a question instead, and that is: Did the state um, uh, did the state argue anything other than 
um, he was he was subject to lifetime registration uh, at the district court. Uh, no, Your Honor, and I'm glad you brought that up because that brings us to State versus Colvin. And one of the reasons there's a reversal in State versus Colvin is because the state had somewhat pigeonholed itself in that case with the, how the violation of the OFP occurred and how the burglary occurred. If you look at the complaint in this case, appellant is charged under subdivision 5A, again, the only provision that makes it a crime in the statute. It's the part of the statute you have to use to charge. Um, and the complaint states that he's subject to lifetime registration and he failed to check in. And so general as that may be, the state did not contain itself to any one theory of the case. In other words, there's no part of the PC narrative in the complaint that appellant can point to and say, well, they said that he registered because of the uh, 2000 amendment or he registered because of the lifetime in another state, lifetime in this state. It said that he had to register for life, which is what the police officer who worked on the case in the BCA said, and that he didn't check in. And the trial court read that evidence and they found him guilty under the subdivision that the state had charged. And the only question now is whether there's enough evidence to support that finding. I don't think it matters that the trial judge uh, made an erroneous statement of fact in the findings of fact. Um, again, taking you back. The state did not argue a uh, 10 year registration period is irrelevant under your theory. Yes. If, as long as there's sufficient evidence of a crime being committed and they're charged under the right subdivision for that crime, I mean, you couldn't charge someone with domestic assault and then find them guilty of sexual assault because those are two different things. But there, Counselor, you're talking about sufficiency of the evidence. I thought the question before us was the sufficiency of the facts stipulated to by the defendant. If this is a stip facts trial, then isn't the test whether the stipulated facts are sufficient to show a conviction? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you for correcting me. The issue is whether the facts stipulated to are sufficient to support a conviction. All right, and what fact, uh, forgive me for, for going back to this, but what, to what fact did the defendant stipulate that makes his, that, that provides a sufficient fact basis for a conviction? 365 pages of it, Your Honor, and include the one I would, sorry, go ahead. But the defendant stipulated to the existence of the exhibit and said it was authentic and so on. Did, did the, did the exhibit break down fact by fact what the defendant was stipulating to? It did not, but it contained the sufficient, the essential facts within it. Um, and for that, Your Honor, I would point you to the um, the report done when appellant was being released um, from. Well, can we just? What about the fact that the evidence included the fact that he was convicted of Calif in California of criminal sexual battery? Yes, that's in there. Right, so that's in there, and, and there's um, the, the person conducting his uh, pre-release report when he's released from prison says he's a lifetime registrant out of California. And at trial, appellant's counsel didn't argue, judge, that's hearsay, judge, don't find that credible, judge, uh, you can't rely on that. And so the trial judge did, and so it is a stipulated fact. If your honor in this court does not find it's a stip facts trial, the state still wins because it's stipulated evidence, if not, and the judge found that to be credible and reliable. Yeah, but then we're in a whole different thicket where the parties seem to think they're doing a stiff facts trial and it's really a stiff evidence trial. And how do we know, was the judge handling this as a stipulated facts trial or a stipulated evidence trial or did he not distinguish between the two? I'm not 100% sure he distinguished, but either finding, way. He, the, I think the findings say stipulated facts, if I'm, if I'm correct, counsel. That yeah, is right, But Justice then Mc for every fact the judge found, he cited to a piece of evidence. Right. So 
And he found, I see what you're saying, Your Honor, because he also found the evidence credible and reliable, which is not something you would necessarily do if it's stipulated. I, I understand that. Exactly. It looks like we're, we've got apples and oranges in the same basket here. But they did, on the record, proceed as a stip facts trial. And again, the judge had that exchange with appellant there in the courtroom, and his attorney had that exchange with him. You understand that what you're stipulating to are the facts. You're stipulating to what happened. Those are quotes from the transcript. But again, Your Honor, the state's position doesn't necessarily depend on that. Um, as, long as, this, as long as this court doesn't find that the trial judge was clearly erroneous in its factual findings were at a stiff evidence trial, the state still wins. Um, but counsel, how can we make that determination on this record? I mean, your opponent says at one point in his brief, it feels like whack-a-mole. And I get that feeling right here today, now listening to you, no offense, but this is a moving target. And you're suggesting to us that, that if there's some evidence somewhere in the record, the district court judge doesn't have to, to land on a, on a spot, doesn't have to pick a horse. And as long as it's kind of somewhere in the ether, it's fine. I just have a real problem with that. Well, he did pick a horse, Your Honor. He picked subdivision. Horse. Well, that was a factual finding, possibly a conclusion of law. I would also point this court to- And so why isn't that clearly erroneous? It was, cl it was clearly erroneous. It was clearly erroneous. I would concede that. It was clearly erroneous for him to say he has to register under 61 and 63. What the state's position is, is that because there's only that one clearly erroneous fact, under 26, Minnesota Rule of Criminal Procedure 2601, subdivision 2E, that doesn't nullify the whole finding of guilt because I, there's sufficient evidence in the record. Can I, Sorry. can I just ask you, so 61, 63 are incorrect, but you're saying under 6E, which would, but that requires a 1B1. And what about the language of 1B1-3 itself? 10 years haven't passed since the person was released from confinement or they're subject to a longer registration offense. Well, or yes, where it says, unless the person is subject to a longer registration period under the laws of another statute. And then it goes on to say, and if that statute is in place, you have to apply that, that length of period. Right. Which is exactly what the, as I understand it, what the district court based its decision on. Um, in the ultimate final findings in the order. In the and conclusions, then, yeah. In the conclusions, but before had done the 61 and 63. They found the lifetime requirement under this difference. So let me ask this. What was argued before the district court? What no, was, sorry. So this was just given to them. There was no like brief submitted, nothing like that, identifying which specific provision. Not in the record that I was provided. Um, no, there's no arguments in the transcripts. There's no briefing. I see my time is up. Can I just finish this? Yes. Answer. Thank you. Um, and that's, that's sort of the point here is that was the time for appellant's counsel to make these arguments because then these facts didn't have any weight and now they do. And they're, they're, they're valid facts unless they're clearly erroneous. Just one more question. On, on your opponent's point, he went through a list of things that there was no evidence in the record to, to suggest. And one of them was that we have no evidence about when he was released in, um, uh, in 2000. Uh, so, and that goes to the 10-year provision. And there were others that went to the 10-year provision as well. But my, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, what do you say in, in response to, to those claims, that, that there is nothing there that, that you would have to have in order for the, the district court to land on any of these provisions? Certainly. Um, so for the 10-year provision, I would first point the court to Exhibit 2, page 45, 
which states that appellant moved here in 2000. We know that that was within 10 years of being released from prison in California based on when he was sent to prison in California, 1992. Then on exhibit two, page 73. So we know when he was released? We know that it was within 10 years of the year 2000. Okay. Then on exhibit two, page 73, it states that appellant was released from Lino Lakes um, in 2008. That would extend his registration period to the very least to 2018, and the offense happened in 2016. Thank, thank, you. thank you, counsel. Mr. Schmitz, you have five minutes for rebuttal. <laughs> Before you get going on, on the rebuttal, can I just ask you, so the, this 2006 law, the effective date language is this section is effective the day following final enactment and applies to offenders residing in Minnesota on or after that date. So doesn't that mean that anybody that's committed an offense that falls within the predatory registration statute that resides in Minnesota on that date has to register? No. And it's because uh, in 2006, there would, there, you would have to uh, look at the two 10-year look-back periods to determine whether or not he had completed his 10-year obligation. Uh, if Mr. Martin was living in an apartment in 2006, uh, and rather than in prison, I guess on June 1st, he wouldn't be registering, and then all of a sudden, he'd have to run down to the BCA based on this amendment. I think that's what the amendment's saying. You're reading the word enters out of the statute because he wasn't entering the, entering the state of Minnesota in 2006. Uh, that is, it's and, enters the state and blah, 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 blah. And he doesn't enter the state. But in, he did enter the state. He entered the state prior to 2006. But, okay, right, thanks. You're going to have to read enters out of the statute to hold otherwise. Um, this is not an omitted facts situation. It was this material that he wants the court to find was not argued or presented to the fact finder. These alternative theories of registration were not presented to the fact finder, not an omitted findings case. It's not an either or case either. It's not a unanimous verdict issue. There was only one theory presented at trial, which is that he registers for life in Minnesota because he registers for life in California. So was the theory at trial was that he has to register life in Minnesota because he was required to in California. That was the yes. theory. Okay. That was the state's theory at trial. Yes. Was he living in California in 1995? When did he leave California? Not in the record. Required un under the 2006 amendment, that would need to be known to determine whether or not we take the lifetime from California. You can't be subject to California's law if you're not living in California. Uh, on the Dirigi and the discussion of stipulated facts, stipulated evidence, if you look at the waiver, there's confusion at the lower court level by the parties on whether or not it was a stipulated fact, stipulated evidence trial. They, they talk about them intermittently. It's not just all stipulated facts. They talk about both stipulated facts, stipulated evidence. It's a stipulated evidence trial. There's not facts submitted to the trial court. It's exhibits, and the exhibits are, they just plop it on the trial court and say, here's the evidence. There's no, find, there's no findings of facts submitted. This is a stipulated evidence trial. Dirigi does not waive anything. It doesn't, uh, my client hasn't 
waived his ability to challenge us by agreeing to the stipulated evidence trial. The fact that he was registering means nothing. He, what, he was told to register. Counsel, let me interrupt you on the stipulated facts versus stipulated evidence. It's the position of the state that this was a stipulated facts trial. And what I'm hearing you say is it was a stipulated evidence trial. Yes. Have you assigned his error brought to the court uh, that the district court committed an error because it treated this is a stipulated facts trial rather than a stipulated evidence trial. I don't think so because I don't think it's dispositive. Under Dereji, this court would construe something based on the party's intent, which here was to have a stipulated evidence trial, regardless of their confusion. It might have been because now under the rules of criminal procedure, both are under you, the You can do both, but the idea, you can have stipulated, some facts are stipulated, some are not, some evidence is stipulated, some is not. I mean, you can have a mixed trial, but everybody supposedly needs to be clear about what they're actually doing. Yeah, they weren't clear here, I agree with that. But it doesn't have any impact on the case or my client's ability to challenge this element. If I had to sum up our position, it's the most, the basic, it's in rewinship. The state is required to prove every element of an offense at trial to the fact finder. It is either an element that he registers or not. Subdivision five of the registration statute says, a person required to register under the section who not only violates any of its provision, if it's an element of the offense, the state needs to submit that to the fact finder. In this context, law is part of the evidence that the fact finder needs to consider. And it's something that the state needed to submit to prove an element. Even where law is part of the evidence, it's a question of fact. And if Minnesota wants to try to uh, criminalize this for out-of-state convictions, it's only time it's gonna come up is with registration and felon in possession cases, and they're gonna have to prove it at trial to the fact finder. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.